Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Money is actually a very interesting kind of numerical way of measuring when you're leveling up. So that's where the distinction needs to be very clear. The way that I've positioned it in the book and what the research tells us is that if we force the games on people, it's actually very bad. But if we look at the games that they naturally play in their free time when they were younger, it's actually a very good predictor in terms of the type of work that they naturally would gravitate to. So if somebody is amazing and loves playing hours and hours of strategy games and if we put that person in front of the machine turning out widgets it's going to be a very bad mismatch and then we, we need to pay them a lot of money and continue trying to squeeze them to improve that performance but if somebody who is really motivated by strategy games and we give them the kind of problems that are very similar to that type of things that they naturally gravitate to they will be naturally motivated. So we're not really creating a new game for them, but we're looking at, at parallels and helping them to find that intrinsic motivation. And that's something that I think is, it becomes super, super powerful where they then create their own games based on the work that we want them to achieve. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and we live in a world that now we oscillate between remote work and return to office policy. What is the future of work? With me today, George Kesselman, managing partner of Willow Ventures, and now a newly minted author of his new book, The Power of Play. He promised he had coming back to the podcast to talk about it. So, George, welcome to the podcast and congratulations. Thank you for inviting me to your book launch last week. Thanks, Bernard. Uh, it's really good to be back. I think it's really been a very interesting experience. I'm really happy to share with the listeners. And definitely, we were going to dive straight into your book. But before that, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? It's been a pretty pretty busy year. I was just remembering. It felt like it, it was more than a year, actually, that we spoke to because there just so many things happened. But when I looked at it, it was really around the year time mark. And just it's been a pretty full on. So writing, releasing a book writing it, launching Willow Ventures. I went a couple of times to really remote places like Mongolia with the Asian Development Bank to to work on some projects there. So it's really been pretty incredible. Mm. And of course, we want to talk about your book, The Power of Play. But before I start, when you first tell me you're going to write a book, not just me, my wife and I both think that you're going to be writing a book on InsurTech in Asia Pacific. Of course, you didn't. So I'm very curious, and we're all very curious, what is the inspiration behind the power of play? So for, for me, it was exactly that kind of a thought process. Uh, I think everybody expected me to write uh, about InsurTech and insurance, because that's the domain that most people know me for. 
But for me, it was something that I reflected as what is the topic that I would be super interested to write about. And it was something that personally really bothers me, kind of the the book that I, I really want others and myself to read as well. And when I started thinking about that, it was really about the people and engagement and all, all the stuff that comes together with really bringing that new type of work to to the workplace and with all the kind of changes that are happening. So it was really the timing, I think, right after, on the back of the COVID, the innovation, things that are happening in the insurance, financial services, broader segment as well, and, and the increasing disconnect between how people want to work and how they're actually working. And all those kind of things were like mixed emotions and been pieces of puzzle in my mind that just really felt like it needed to be to be shared with the audience. And I also know when you just about embarking on the book, you only just sent to one publisher and then you got the book project approved, right? It was very lucky. I, I know that I've spoken to many authors who say that they have to speak to many publishers and sometimes it's quite a frustrating process. So when I spoke to Wiley about it, I was honestly had a very low expectation. I kind of said the chance of me getting it is probably very low, but somehow everything clicked in the place really well. And they liked me. I liked them. The book pitch landed really well with them. And here we are. So the team has been actually incredible to work with. So I, I felt like it was really the godsend that all, all fit together so nicely. So it's meant to happen. And obviously, at some point, you must write a book on InsurTech. I'm sure it's as good as this book. But let's come to the book itself. Who is the intended audience for the book? So the intended audience for the book is really the managers and the leaders and, and people in general who are working in the in all kinds of jobs that require new type of approaches. So one of the big pushes for me was when, when I was writing it was how do I give something that's a practical way for people to think about way that we structure work and how there is a potential mismatch between the way that work is done the problems that we're addressing and the way that we've set things up. So the audience is pretty broad, but so far what I've seen is most people that it resonated the best with is the team leaders. So people came to me and said, well, this is really good because I've been trying to motivate my team and I've been struggling to see how to drive that motivation that really helps me to think about it in a different way is really helpful. Of course, because when you do deal with, say, remote work, even for managing people, it's actually becoming, it's taking a different sets of skills or even trying to motivate them back to return to office as such. But if I were to look at, say, the whole book overall, what are the main themes and key takeaways of the book that you want them to come back with? I think the key takeaway is really that we, we need to approach motivation in a different way. And, and this is not the first time that this is being said. There's a few books that were written about it. But when I when I read the books that were previously read about motivation, it was a little bit less practical. So it was the point was spot on to say that we need to think about motivation in a different ways. There is a disconnect between how we motivate people and, and how naturally people need to be motivated. But there was no real kind of a practical application. And I haven't worked across, you know, startups, corporates, unicorns, and talked to so many people, really had that view about making it practical and making it, you know, as a step-by-step process. 
So the, the my t- key takeaway for the people who are reading it is really for them to think about how the nature of the work problems that we, we're working on now is so drastically different than it was probably even 20, 30 years ago. But the way that we set up the work is still very, very traditional in a sense. Um, and it has worked relatively okay for, you know, up until year 2020, where things were still quite traditional and industrialized in nature. But as we started to move so rapidly into the area of knowledge work, creative problems, all this kind of accelerating technology applications, the way that work has been set up is just becomes disconnected. And that's why you kind of see that the motivation and, and the engagement in the workplace is just dropping crazily. Um, and I think the, the other key takeaway is that for people to think about themselves, and I, I know probably a lot of the people feeling that they are you know, unique in that sense, like they're not enjoying work, they feel like demotivated, they feel like they want to quit and start something themselves. I, I think there's uh, the hope for them to really find something that is motivating at work, but just it requires for both the people and for the organizations to make small adjustments and to kind of make that progression to to set it up in a way that it, it is naturally much more motivating than just throwing more money at people and asking them to work longer hours. That's right. And one thing I really appreciate while reading the whole book, the first part of the book talks about the brief history of work and it discusses the different demotivators of work. I think one of it is unlocking engagement and also fulfillment as well. One question really has been on my mind, partly also inspired you to write the book as well, is did the recent pandemic actually exacerbated these demotivators when everybody went from one extreme in working from home and then suddenly have been asked to return to the office. You're absolutely right. And basically the concept of looking at where is a place where people solve problems at scale and really feel very deeply engaged. When I looked at all the different areas, obviously the place that is most common is uh, people playing games. There's few elements that make games so engaging and and drive people to go and spend hours and hours without anybody paying them, in most cases, to go and focus on solving problems in games. A big part of it is actually about autonomy. Autonomy to go and and figure out what is the most interesting problem for them to solve and find that kind of a, a place where they have the freedom to do it. What you said, I think, is exactly spot on. So during COVID, we had that glimpse of autonomy where most people over, overnight had to work from home. And that autonomy of you working from home, you decide when you want to work, how you want to work, here's the things that we want you to solve, I think gave people a little bit of a glimpse of, oh, actually, there is probably a different way of doing it. There's some people who work better at it. There's obviously some people who were not motivated by work and autonomy given to them probably just make them uh, completely disconnect from from, uh, working and then their productivity Mm -hmm. dropped. So when people went back to office and a lot of companies said, hey, COVID is over, I need you to come back to office three, four, five days a week. And that autonomy kind of being taken away from people, I I think just created this very negative cycle of demotivation for a lot of the people. So people who, who, let's say, weren't performing during the COVID period or even before the COVID period, it, it, you know, performance, you can kind of say that relatively probably stay the same. Uh, But for the people who were 
let's say, found themselves extremely motivated when they were having that autonomy taken away from them, obviously created a lot of, a, a lot of negative emotions and, and demotivation for them. Mm, partially also because that not just the autonomy that's given, but also the flexibility specifically for women who can actually fulfill all their other duties other than, you know, just able to fulfill the work requirements and that flexibility is also taken away at the same time. One interesting part of the book is you broke work into three eras. I call the work 1.0. Maybe it's also good to revisit some of the key concepts so that when we lead into the main theme of the book, which you, I think you want to talk about is, can you talk about the legacy of work and also explain the link between time and money. I know a lot of us see this all the time, but I, I think they never actually have that sense of what's the link between the time you spend to work and money that's being connected that way. Well, I think that's a very, a very interesting point. And I think that's quite core to why we're in the situation that we are right now. So the the eras of the work were pre, pre-industrial was uh, very much the beginning, the version one of work where uh, everybody was doing their own things. There was uh, a lot of craftsmanship uh, associated with it. There wasn't really a lot of automation. So people working in the farms, people working in the crafts. So there was quite a uh, wide variety of different things, uh, but it was done in a very, let's call it a relatively small scale. Then industrial revolution came. This is where the work really got upgraded to the next uh, level. Uh, and this is where we've created this kind of work operating system uh, where we said, look, there's a time that uh, the machine is working. Uh, and if I put a person to operate the machine, there's a very close linkage between the time and the output. So therefore, I'm going to compensate based on exactly that time. So this is where that concept of uh, time is money was really born. And I think that in itself became such a core concept because it was easy to measure, right? I can measure very easily how much time you spend at your desk, same as how much time you used to spend in the machine. And then when it comes to the simple outputs, like widgets at the machine or, or turning out some car parts, that is easy to measure because the unit output is very clear. Mm. Obviously, when we move to the current stage where work is largely becoming uh, knowledge work and the problem-solving work, the, that connection between the time and the output is much, much less clear. And this is where we're still trying to measure the time, measure the output in terms of the time. So the nine to five was something that was put in place to opt as a negotiation between the unions and, and the government and the employers to say that, okay, we, we want people to produce a certain amount of work in the factories so that they don't get overexhausted. Obviously, that nine to five, 40 hour work week it, it, it's, it's absolutely not relevant as we think about it right now. So if the person is extremely motivated and it takes them five hours to solve the hardest problems that you want you throw at them, you actually shouldn't really care about what they do during the rest of the five hours as they ponder the meaning of universe or whatever else is in, 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 intrinsically motivated for them. But vice versa, if the person is working 40 hours, but there's really no output, the problem is not being solved, actually that connection between that time and money is much, much less clear as we think about it right now. So I think the big problem right now in the work that we've done is that it's harder to measure the outputs that are not uh, tangible, like in terms of the, the widgets, right? So when you ask the 
person to solve a problem in the, let's say, somebody who is a full-time environment, it, it's very loose, right? So we, we measure that output at the end of the year when we do evaluation and we say, okay, how did you do on your performance for one year? But it's such a poor way of doing it that it, it really loses that linkage. And that's why the, the actual productivity and efficiency is dropping very low. And as a, as a result of it, people feel even less motivated because let's say you have somebody who is working really hard and passionate about it. And then the colleague at the desk next to them is not really working at all and is getting paid exactly the same. So that kind of a concept, I think, is something that we need to rework as we go into this next phase of evolution of work. Mm. If I take a step back, then, you know, like, for example, you talk about the industrial revolution where we went from craftsmanship work into very industrial based unit of work, machine work. And then in my parents' generation, and I think specifically in Asia, it's actually much interesting. People don't work 40 hours. In China, people talk about 996, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. And it happened to Japan and Korea before they started to realize burnout culture and then they start to reduce back to the 40 hours. I think the same will go for China as well because there's now a backlash in China or they call it four flat timeping as such. But in our my parents' generation time, we talk a lot more about lifetime employment. Uh, we talk about the Six Sigma to try to streamline things and try to talk about quality management. And then now we drop into this internet work culture where, as I think you rightfully pointed out, where work has become slightly intangible. Maybe I, I just want to hear your thoughts on how does all these kind of perceptions since our parents' time or even grandparents' time where we talk about lifetime employment, today hardly people talk about that. Your average lifespan in a company is probably three years at most and probably uh, one to two years you probably will go to your next tour of duty. How does it change and how do you think that this evolution is actually happening right now in your work 3.0 world? I think that's a very good question. I think it is quite fundamental to how the work is going to be organized. It, it does appear that the way that the work is structured and the way that it is transitioning now, it is going back to the pre-industrial revolution where there is going to be a lot more freelance engagements and gigs and then people become much more specialized and they become the owners of that of them themselves rather than again what you mentioned is somebody who used to be in the lifetime employment mm -hmm. you come out of university and you basically set for life your productivity can be extremely low but nonetheless there is a kind of a both sides commitment that you're going to be in that work relationship for extremely long period of time so as we think about extrapolating it then you say Lifetime employment was when there was a real shortage of people and the work was simple. So therefore, it was that kind of a mutual commitment to secure secure work. Uh, now, what you, what you want is not, you don't want a warm body sitting in front of a computer and typing emails. You want somebody who is really exceptional at what they do. They're extremely good at marketing. They're extremely good at creating new types of software or, or, or something that the problem that you're currently working on. And you might not want them to be there sitting at the desk for next one year just because you want, want somebody there. What, what mm -hmm. we kind of see is that people on average, the actual product, productive work is somewhere between 20 to, to 40% of the time. 
which is extremely low. So the, the, the rest of the time, people are just sitting there twiddling their thumbs on doing make work uh, projects. It's demotivating for them. There's no real tangible output for the companies. So if we say that you're currently productive at 20% of your time or 40% of your time, there's still a tremendous amount of time that you can dedicate to other things. And if you say that instead of uh, having one full-time job, I have two or three freelance projects or, or something that's a shorter duration work that maybe you just come into the project for three months, you finish the project, and then you there in a less stressful environment for the next two months kind of as, as you wait for something else. That's in fact used to be the way that a lot of the work was structured before the industrial revolution. It, it wasn't constant uh, pace of burn. It used to be very much like the units of work used to be people, let's say if you're talking about farms, people used to work in the farms for nine months a year. Then the three months, there's really a downtime when either winter or seasonality. And then that gives people a chance to recharge, re make it much more sustainable rather than this kind of environment right now where we try to squeeze the time and really lead into the burnout, like you said. Mm. And I think this is where I think the next part of the book becomes much more interesting because you start to talk about the gamification in the workplace. I think one one thing that I really think about a lot about is the role of gamification in the workplace. And I think there is a very good distinction you make. And I think a lot of people confuse trying to gamify the workplace and making it worse and they don't realize it is the distinction between superficial gamification and meaningful game design. Can you touch on these concepts and actually provide more color to uh, how I've introduced these concepts to the audience out there? Absolutely. And I think it is an extremely important uh, distinction because I've had many conversations with people where they say, hey, we introduced points and games into our into our teams. doesn't seem to work. Like, yeah, it seems to work a little bit in the beginning, but then the leaderboard concept really didn't take off and people kind of really tuned out of it. And I had a similar conversation even with students and in universities where I said, like, they absolutely hate it. So anytime they hear somebody trying to gamify something, that's kind of like automatic gag reaction for them. And, and the reason for that is because, again, as, as we come back to that concept of games and autonomy, when you force somebody to play a game, that actually is counter to how the games work and why the games are so attractive. So it, it, let's imagine if somebody comes to you right now on the street and says, okay, Bernard, I'm going to pay you $20 or $100 mm-hmm. for you to play this game for the next three hours. And it might be the most wonderful game that there is, but that switch of somebody forcing you to play a game, it changes that whole setup and, and removes that element of autonomy to a point where it becomes a demotivator. So if somebody forces you to play a game, it's much, much more closer to the demotivation than it is to motivation. So then if we take that concept of games and we say, actually, games are a really good proxy to think about how to drive motivation much more naturally. So right now, we try to motivate people by giving them money as the key motivator. We say, okay, if you do something, I'm going to give you money. If you do something more, I'm going to give you more money. 
But actually, the reality is that the money is a very poor motivator. And in fact, it uh, is proven in the, a lot of the research that, first of all, it, it kind of starts to demotivate pretty quickly. The effects are very short in, in duration. And in a lot of the times, if you throw more money at the person to for them to kind of work harder actually it removes a lot of creativity and narrows their focus so people who are being paid more they typically have less creativity elements because of that kind of a demotivator element it's not 100 universal because a lot of the times if we think about like the kind of ceos and others they play a slightly different game so they play the game of using money as a score for themselves to kind of level up to the next level. So the money itself is a poor motivator, but if somebody who is a particular game of personality, like the achievers, where they really use the, they need a score basically to keep a score that they're getting ahead. Money is actually a very interesting kind of numerical way of measuring when you're leveling up. So that's where the distinction needs to be very clear. So the way that I've positioned it in the book and what the research tells us is that the games, if we force the games on people, is actually very bad. But if we look at the games that they naturally play in their free time when they were younger, it's actually a very good predictor in terms of the type of work that they naturally would gravitate to. So if somebody is amazing and loves playing hours and hours of strategy games. And if we put that person in, in, you know, in front of the machine, turning out widgets, it's going to be a very bad mismatch. And then we, we need to pay them a lot of money and kind of continue trying to squeeze them to, to improve that performance. But if somebody who is really good, really motivated by strategy games, and we give them the kind of problems that are very similar to that type of things that they naturally gravitate to, they will be naturally motivated. So that it's not really like we're not really creating a new game for them, but we're looking at at parallels and helping them to find that intrinsic motivation. And that's something that I think is, it becomes super, super powerful where they then create their own games or, or based on the work that we, we want them to achieve. Interesting you say that. So I'm a strategy game player and I... Typically, used to play Dungeons and Dragons, and this teacher how to role play, how to think about scenario. I like the the be the storyteller and be the dungeon master, and then obviously I play strategy games like your StarCraft two, and I think of all the strategies to try to win a game, or such. I think there is this persona parts of it, and I think that when I play strategy games, I think like how do I allocate resource. And then it, it tends to gravitate me towards roles that where I can think about resource allocation. How do I put think about where to put things as such? But I think in the book itself, you just talk about the different persona in games. I think when you talk about climbing up the corporate ladder, actually it's very different types of, you have different personas at different phases of that, right? I think you have like a few roles. I think the achiever, the explorer, the socializer, the challenger, and the hybrid. Maybe can you talk? Uh, can you give some color to all these kind of profiles and how do they approach games individually and in teams and how does this map into the real world work as such? Mm. So uh, yeah, but, uh, just... in in essence, if you think about this kind of a personality types, it it is really based on the type of games that people gravitate to and how they play those games. 
So those are the two key components. Um, and e- each of those personalities is quite distinctive. And usually you have a dominant personality. So for me, for example, I'm more, much more of an explorer. So I love this open-end uh, worlds where I just get to explore, poke my head around everywhere, just like spend hours and hours finding out new things about this worlds. And this is what I find very naturally motivating for me. And then that kind of translated very closely when I looked at the type of work that I gravitate to and the places where I didn't, it didn't really work so well, where I felt like there was a tremendous friction. This is exactly both a roadmap for myself, as well as a roadmap for somebody like, let's say, if you're trying to find somebody for that particular problem that you're trying to solve or a role that you're looking uh, to hire. So each of those roles is quite different. So the achievers generally are very much driven by this desire to achieve more, climb, get more perfect at uh, what they're doing and really level up in the games. Explorers is really more of a discovery, curiosity. Then you have socializers, which are very much driven by the relationship and social aspects of the games. And then you have kind of challengers, which trying to very interestingly push boundaries in in all parts of the game, try to find either faults or shortcuts or or new ways of doing something that allows them to challenge the status quo. And a lot of the times they go into the shooting games or racing games that really allows them kind of to, to materialize that. And then hybrid where you say that there is much less of a dominant personality because there are some people who just universally love games and they play all kinds of games in all different ways. So they have less of a dominant personality and they're more of a kind of uh, flex themselves across all these different personality types. So that's how we've discovered during the book that kind of there is a very clear path between how the games, how people play games and how that translates potentially to the work that they're doing naturally and feel much more naturally motivated by it. Mm. And, and what are the different motivations in work? I mean, why did we choose money as the primary motivation, right? Could there be other motivations that can draw people towards work? Yeah, so the research again tells us that somewhere around $100,000, the money becomes much less of a motivator. So before that, because you still have a lot of kind of needs that you need to fulfill. Maybe Singapore is a little bit higher now that the rents climbed in the last couple of years. But right around that mark somewhere where we say that the, above that, the money becomes really more like a points rather than the actual motivator because the, most of your needs have actually been fulfilled or basic needs if you think about like a Maslow kind of a hierarchy. So then the, the rest of it is really about the intrinsic motivations. So what you're saying, I think, is exactly spot on is that if money is not a right motivator, what is then the right motivator? So the right motivator is something that drives us to do more. And if you think about it, again, why do people play games? Nobody pays people to play games in most cases, and unless we're talking about the esports. So all those other billions of people who are playing games, they're motivated to do it just because in, something inside of them tells us that it's the very interesting thing to do and really drives them to spend hours and hours working on these hard problems. We know that there is this concept of flow where 
we naturally feel like the time passes really quickly. We feel super engaged. We feel like the problem that we're working on is exactly the right match for our skills and, and our knowledge. So we really feel very drawn into the process. Games obviously do very well trying to find that that right curve and difficulty. You pick some of that when you select the level that you want to play in, and then naturally the games also adjust to make it a little bit harder, a little bit easier to fine tune. So when we think about that at work, there are also concepts that carry themselves across that. So that uh, there are some people who are just very naturally motivated. They love what they do. So there's, over time, somehow they, they found that match, even though nobody kind of gave them the right roadmap. But the rest of the people who kind of lack that motivation and they think that, gosh, like, I, I wish I would be doing something else, like, or they think about, I'm just waiting for my retirement. This is where the motivation is really missing, or there's a mismatch between the type of work that is not truly motivating for them to the type of work that they're doing. Um, and a lot of people would say, okay, well, I don't have a luxury to, let's say, jump from the stuff that I'm doing right now and kind of providing for my family or, or kind of earning to doing something that I would love to do. Um, and this is where I think that things will start to change in the next 10 years, 20 years, because the nature of work is also going to change. We, we're not going to just require somebody to be engineer for the rest of their life. That that change cycle is going to increase so rapidly that we will have a luxury to say that, okay, I was trained in, as an engineer in the university. Now it's been four years that I've started doing a, a lot of stuff around engineering, but gosh, I really love sales. And I feel it's like very naturally motivating for me. I feel excited when I do something, talk to the customers, because I'm really motivated by one of the things that sales do, either the social aspects of it, or really the kind of the achievement of, of securing the next sale or business development. This is where we have that luxury of transitioning. So rather than keeping doing what is not motivating, to really find that places where we are deeply motivated by the work itself. Mm. And, and, and I think when you think about games, you don't need to already have like very complex games. I play a lot of very complex strategy games uh, like Puerto Rico, Supremacy. And then obviously lately I've spent a lot of time on chess. And one senior has once remarked to me because I was explaining the way I play chess. The reason was I can't play long form chess because I, I used to be stuck in all the number ones to tens of their respective country because I did my PhD in Cambridge. And what happened was they decided one day to try a different game on me and say, hey, you know, but then you can't beat us in this. But what we're going to do is we play a different game with you. You're going to give it 10 minutes. And if you can defend against my barrage of attack and it will be very fast. And if you can survive a draw, it means you win. They just made me play this like almost like 20,000, 30,000 times. Essentially, my strategy of playing chess is try not to lose. And that also derives your strategy on how to think about it. While just telling you how I think about the strategy just from learning about a few hundred thousand configurations of playing chess and playing with the best in the world, how do we actually apply things like game development principles to work? And how does the way you deal with the game mechanics also modify the type of work that you do. Changing from a long-form thinking strategy game suddenly back to a survival more game is a very different way of thinking about the game itself and absolutely. also its relation to work. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. And th this is something that I didn't want to dive in 
too too early in the book because yeah. obviously when you're talking about restructuring work and making it much more like a, a mm. game design then i think a, a lot of people will be like put off because we know that just the challenge of re-engineering work itself is going to be a tremendous one. So that's why I started off with a very simple practical strategies to find that better matching. But of course, when we think about it much more fundamentally, the elements that made games so attractive and so appealing in terms of that intrinsic motivation is something that I think we will start to see much more implemented when it comes to work. So right now, work is being done in a very monolithic way. So I have this problem. I'm just going to throw it at somebody within my team, and then I I don't really care how they're going to solve it. I'm just going to squeeze it in. Where where I think in the future, what's going to happen is we will start to see that the problem itself is going to be a lot shorter and a lot more distinct and discrete in nature. Like what you said, I think is instead of this massive game of, let's say, one hour chess game, you, you're going to have a much more discrete, maybe at the 20 minutes level where you say, this is exactly what we need to solve right now. And it's a much, much faster feedback cycle. Um, and at the same time, that kind of the element of failure being acceptable is something that needs to happen much more in order for people to really increase that pace of learning. Because right now we kind of have this really suboptimal setup when it comes to knowledge work where I want you to work on this problem for the next two months. um, And then I'm going to give you a vague kind of feedback at at the end of it, whether I like it or, or I don't like it in terms of the output. So in terms of the actual learning, this is a very poor setup. And that's why a lot of people, again, find themselves very demotivated because, you know, they were excited to solve this problem, but they get very poor feedback, but then they don't really understand what's, you know, how do they improve? How do they learn? And if we think about it, again, drawing a parallel to games, a lot of the games are, are kind of a self-learning environment. Nobody comes with the game to say that here's a hundred page or, or a thousand page manual how for you to learn how to play this game. Kind of you play by doing it, you play by making mistakes um, and kind of the small nudges in the right direction. And I think this is what will fundamentally happen to work as well, because we, we, Otherwise, we're going to just lose the whole generation of people who are going to disconnect it and say, look, I'm I'm not going to just do any work. I'm just going to play games my whole time and then just do enough for, for me to get enough food and, and kind of internet. And then the rest of it, I'm going to disconnect from the reality. So we, we will have that pressure point from the work environment where we will need to to create new types of work structures that are resembling games in a lot much much uh, more distinct ways. I think those are some of the small elements that really, if you think about it, makes the games what they are, right? Like matching the, the right skill, um, right, right level of challenge to what people are able to do, learning as, as by doing the smaller, less painful failures and the very, very quick feedback cycles. Mm. So I think there are just two questions that I've thought about when I think about this in applying these kind of game principles. I think first is the matching people to work. What is a predictor of success then when you start to apply things like game principles into trying to match people for work? So the predictor of success is that, again, performance and and the happiness of people at work is going to be the real, I guess, a feedback mechanism. And, And... Obviously, I think the other thing that needs to be thought about in this kind of environment is 
when we match people to work in an ideal environment, we don't want to, to say, okay, I've matched you to this particular work, and then you cannot switch it for the next four years. And then mm. kind of people, whatever motivation and excitement that they had in the beginning is going to be evaporated because people are going to, again, I feel that the autonomy has been taken away from them. But for example, if we match person to a particular problem or job and we say, look, you try this for the next six months and we think that you're going to really love it. But at the end of the six months, if you come to us and say you you absolutely don't like what you're doing, we're very happy to to again iterate and find you somewhere else where it could be a potentially a better match. That way, it gives people the autonomy that they are in the driver's seat; they are the ones that are deciding it. At the same time, they, there is a kind of a potential match to what they naturally gravitate to. It is very new, and right now, of course, if you ask let's say 10 people or 100 people, what is your motivation, key motivation? 99 out of them probably are going to say that money is the key motivator. Just because we've been conditioned to it through all the stuff that we've been doing, obviously people think that actually, you know, based on what the advertised success is, the money is the right motivator. But actually when we, again, all the research that's been done in this area, you talk to somebody who is retiree, somebody who's about to retire and you ask them, was money the real motivator for you at the end as you thought it was going to be? And the almost 100% answer is that it isn't. It is really the work itself and the challenges and the problems are much, much stronger motivator. That comes to the second question then. How do we test engaged performances of workers in a remote or distributed work environment? Because like, for example, there are very few companies that's fully remote work. I think I think it's only GitLab, Atlassian. I think these are probably the few companies that are actually doing it. And they also have shared their playbooks. I think it's going to be very interesting to think about the performance assessments. What are your thoughts on that? So that's exactly right as well. So... Again, when I looked at the places where this is working in terms of the examples of, of clusters, open source is clearly one. So you have the environment where people are coming in, they're contributing to projects, they are remote, nobody is really sitting on them and saying, you must deliver this, I'm going to pay you more. They generally is, is very flexible and most of the time is also not paid work. So... But the motivation is very high. So if we think about how they measure the performance in this kind of environment, it is by evaluating somebody who is contributing the quality of, of their contributions to project and, and the community itself decides whether that quality is above the certain standard or doesn't meet that standard. And I think that's really the best way to to have that measurement of remote work because, of course, you're not sitting there and having a, a daily check-in or, or looking over the shoulder of the person to say, what are they doing? Are they playing a game or are they on the email or, or are they really hard at work solving that problem? I, I think, again, that kind of comes to that, that place where we know that the problems that we need to solve and we know that there is an output is no different from freelancing where you say like, I, I need to design a website or I need to have another program written, a piece of software written. And I know starting point and the end point is clearly measurable. I think that's where the remote work needs to be very clearly thought of in terms of how do you measure success? How do you measure quality? And rigorously trying to have that feedback cycle 
very quickly so that it doesn't take months and, and you know, quarters until we give that feedback. So that person has a chance to understand how the performance is versus to the expectation. Are they contributing? Is the standard below? And at the same time, have a chance to improve and continue delivering it. Mm. So I'm very curious now to ask, what are the other interesting stuff that didn't end up in this book? Or if I may just go to be more straightforward, are you planning to write a sequel? So that is another very good question. I think one of the areas that I started to spend more time as as I was researching was in the kind of this reward system that we have in our brain. And clearly games are very good at activating as kind of this whole dopamine circuits and kind of how this whole system works. Um, And I I would have liked to spend more time kind of flushing it out, but just in terms of when I needed to publish the book, it just wasn't enough time for me to finish that research. So that's something that I I am thinking about. How do I either as a sequel or or as something that I write as a bit of a follow-up series of blogs to go on and start to to really green that to life a little bit to, to see how that ties in. I think there is a very interesting path forward on that because clearly we're living in an environment where there's all those things around us that are pressing that kind of a dopamine uh, release, talking about the phones, the TikToks of the world and, and everything, basically, where it starts to mess it up a little bit. One, one of the examples where I saw that is, again, thinking about games. If you play, let's say, a couple of hours of games a day, generally, it, it's totally okay. But if you once you reach something like three, four hours of games a day, your dopamine starts to go haywire. And then this is where you actually start to lose motivation in not just in work, but in everything else that you're doing, because it just is not as motivating. It's not just exciting. And, and the dopamine is a big contributor to that. So that's something I think is super interesting. I'll probably spend a little bit of time back in it as well. Mm, definitely let me know. And then we can have another conversation on your next book. <laughs> but of course, you're welcome anytime to talk about InsureTech in the Asia Pacific. My final question, what does success mean to you for the readers who have learned from your book? I think the success would be having more open conversations about motivation and and engagement and and just stepping outside of the box. Even through this process of writing the book has been super rewarding because I had a chance to really go out to all kinds of people that I would have naturally had a conversation and have a conversation about how they are motivating themselves, how they think about motivation for their teams, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I think that's to me is really the core of this success for this book is really prompt people to think about it in a different way from how they thought about it. Because a lot of the times, I think we're just so caught up in the, in our daily lives where we think, okay, it's a given that it's a 40 hour work week. It's a given that time is money. All those kind of things are almost like we, we assume that it's the case. And lifting the lid on it and saying that, wait a minute, Maybe that was okay for past 100 years, but is it still relevant right now? Is something that I think would be both a big kind of eye-opener for everybody. I'm hoping that this is going to be something that leads to people for motivation. And that, to me, that would be the most successful thing. Mm. And definitely, we will continue to have that conversation. Um, so, George, many thanks for coming on the show. And of course, in closing, I have two more questions. The first one is, any recommendations which have inspired your life recently? Any recommendations that inspired my life recently? I think it's recommendation that inspired my life recently is to to think about how we frame things around us. 
So, for example, in our house, I have two kids, two relatively young kids, and we've been thinking about how do we get them to help develop more. So recommendation one was, first of all, of course, limit the use of mobile technology and kind of all these distractions. So we took away TV, we took away, we limited the phone use, and we put a, we put a piano. And the, my, that, that was a bit of an experiment. And my son really took to it and he's spending hours playing piano because there wasn't anything else of framing that for him as a way that it wasn't forced on him. But again, it was something that was a way for him to express himself was, I think, a really, really interesting discovery. And I have that as a recommendation to think about framing the problems and framing the ways. The second one, I think, is really Maybe it's very trivial, but I've been so focused on maintaining health as one of the one of the success factors as well. So as you start to do more things like writing books and working on the hard problems, it's very easy to get caught up and sleep gets sacrificed. So my recommendation, and this is I've been pretty diligent at it, is to say make sure that sleep is a non-negotiable and having that health element is something that is really absolutely a foundation for everything that you do. Mm, that's great recommendation, and obviously, I also recommend everyone, uh, to look at this uh thing called fin- finite and infinite games. I think it's a very interesting way about thinking about gameplay in life. So, how can my audience find you? Uh, most of my uh connections happen on LinkedIn still. I haven't found that there's a better platform, so they can find me. It's the uh, slash in short tech. And or they can just look up my name and usually it's, it's quite easy to connect. And of course, check out George's new book, The Power of Play by George Kesselman, right? <laughs> yes, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, and definitely you can find this podcast on YouTube and everywhere else. LinkedIn is also one of the channels now we operate in. And obviously, give us your review and give us your thoughts on the episode. So once again, George, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Same here. It was fun. Thank you.